Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to continue on with my trip through Israel, starting on day four. Now, this is episode four, day four. Kind of worked out because day two was, well, day one was just a little bit of travel and first impressions in Joppa. Then day two was a day of atonement, so there wasn't any touring. So I was able to get into day three a little bit and then finish up day three in the third episode. So now we're kind of caught up episode four day. So day four in Israel. And before we start, I want to just say um, I was sick last week, just a little bit. And so I have like no chest voice. So if you hear anything off, that's all it is. But I feel fine. Just my voice is a little bit gone. So hopefully it's not too annoying. Uh, But in day four, this was a really cool day. Uh, We had other people join us. So not everybody that was going to be attending the feast in Israel was with us yet, but we did have more that had, you know, made their travel plans and were able to come a little bit early, just not as early as we had uh, two days before. But the buses were starting to fill up just a little bit more. So that was nice. A lot more people we knew from Columbus joined us. So that was cool. And the very first place on our list to visit for this day was Herodium. And Herodium was really awesome. Uh, it's a place in the West Bank. So already this is cool because we're making our first journey into the West Bank, which if you've been watching the news, there's a lot of a lot of things going on there right now as well as in Gaza. Um, actually, we found out just a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, that the gate or the checkpoint that we went through to get into the West Bank on our way to Herodium was actually attacked uh, just very recently and a guard there was stabbed. And that's uh, that's just awful to hear about. I mean, it, it's on one hand, it's it's uh, interesting and exciting and, and uh, just ver- really connects me to what's going on there. But on the other hand, you hate to hear about, you know, people being stabbed. Like, that's just a terrible thing, especially we got there, you know, and um, the checkpoints really weren't much of an issue whether you were Jewish or Palestinian or an American tourist, they pretty much just uh, either waved you through or they hopped on our bus for like half a second and just waved at us to make sure we were who we said we were. Um, but they were very friendly. So to think back and like I can see the face of the girl that got on our bus to like check us out and to think that it was her or one of her friends, like that's just just awful. Um, but we did go through that gate and at the time there wasn't, uh, a lot of tension going on, you know, and I'll, I wanted to mention too, um, the attacks on Israel by Hamas hadn't happened until the end of the trip. Uh, so I will get into that. I will talk about that a little bit. I really don't, I don't have any desire to like give you my opinion over and over and over again on, on things. Um, I think Hamas is despicable and I, I'm very supportive of Israel. They were an incredible group of people and not to mention just like my whole past with the Bible and you know, the Bible has ties to that land and, and that people. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly, uh, there's no part of me that is willing to entertain any thoughts that are pro Hamas or even like remotely sympathetic towards them, but we don't have to get into that. Um, I'll discuss like kind of what happened day of, but yeah, I just I don't really have any desire to talk about uh, the geopolitics of it all because honestly, I'm not an expert in that. So, uh, but Herodium, like I said, was in the West Bank, and so some were a little bit nervous, you know, thinking like, well, is it safe or will there be 
incidents or do we have to worry about that? Our guides were very, very um, reassuring, like, absolutely not. This is not a problem. I go here all the time. Uh, people come and go between the West Bank all the time. It's not an issue. And we talked a lot about the politics uh, currently in the area. You know, do the Jews hate the Palestinians? Do the Palestinians hate the Jews? What are the tensions like? And the interesting part, uh, he, you know, he showed us like border walls and stuff. And he said, I've got friends over here and they're friends with me. I take my car to get fixed over here often. I was stationed here when I was in the military because, you know, all, everyone in Israel is, um, it's mandatory that they, they join the, the IDF, at least for a time. And so he didn't really see any problem. Like he didn't think there was any real huge tension. Obviously there were, there are more extreme groups and everything, but he had no hatred or animosity towards any of the people in the West Bank. And as far as he was concerned, they didn't have any towards him. Uh, he even said that, you know, when these lines were drawn, so many in the West Bank would talk to him and say, man, if it was just drawn like a mile that way, so I could be a part of Israel, you know, because their identity, they still feel a lot of them like they're Israeli. And, you know, this isn't even to mention the fact that Israel has better education, better health care, better government assistance. You know, there's there's a lot of benefits for being an Israeli citizen. Uh, so a lot of the people that the line was drawn close to their homes, they ended up in the West Bank. They're like, man, this is not good. We wish we it had just been drawn a little bit farther. So that was all very interesting to hear about. And, uh, you know, our time there was was good. I never, we never really had any issue in the West Bank at all. Um, there was never, you know, any huge problem or like no one ever felt unsafe or even, at least I didn't, no one felt um, like aggressed against, I guess. I don't know how else to phrase that. Um, but it was just, you know, it was a nice place. Obviously, the uh, infrastructure was a little bit less than Israel because, like I said, they they want to be treated like their own place. And so they are. And they simply just don't have the resources for infrastructure that Israel has. So it's not that everything was worn down and horrible, but it definitely wasn't um, to the caliber that you see in Israel because, you know, Israel is has a lot of wealthy allies and all that so yeah they want to be their own separate place and they are their own separate place so there's a distinct culture there even though there is a lot of mixing between so um i would say this was like a little bit more of a desert place there was it was quite a bit hotter a little bit more arid um but it didn't feel like i was outside of israel necessarily you know it didn't feel like this is such a drastic difference, uh, like it was when I went to Jordan. You know, that was night and day. But the West Bank, even though it was definitely its own distinct area, it wasn't um, so different that you felt like you were entering into a new country or anything. And the people acted the same way. So that's just interesting and a, a comment on that. But we were going to Herodium, which in this huge landscape of fairly flat land, you have this mountain rising up just kind of out of the blue. And this is Herodium. And what used to be not a mountain was engineered to be a mountain by Herod the Great. So that already is impressive. And when I say there was no mountain and then there was a mountain, Herod the Great was known for his architecture, for his buildings and for his designs. And so he saw this area of land and thought, this is where I want a place to be, but he needed it to be high enough up so that those who hated him in Jerusalem, remember Herod the Great, 
pretty much all of the Herods were not terribly well loved by uh, the Jewish people, but we're also, we can look across the landscape to Jerusalem. Now, our guide pointed it out to us as we're on this mountain, like, see, there it is. I couldn't really tell exactly where it was in the landscape, but he seemed to have a very good clue and I could see where he was pointing. So I just didn't know the boundary line of where exactly it was, but he wanted this mountain to be far enough removed from Jerusalem that those who hated him uh, could still see it and that he could see Jerusalem and that it would always kind of be this, for lack of a better term, this middle finger to the Jewish people, like, look how much high, higher up over you I am. So this is why he built it here. And so he goes to this flat land and he engineers an entire mountain with a palace on top. And so this is important for three reasons. So for one, um, this is one of the greatest sites that Herod built. There was, there's a few throughout Israel, but this is one of the, the more impressive um, archaeological sites that Herod built. Two, um, this is also where he, when he died, he was laid to rest. So where his tomb was. And then three, after Herod's death and after the time of, of Christ, uh, you had the Jewish wars. And this is was a big place that uh, the the members of the Bar Kokhba revolt um, stationed themselves. And so it's kind of like three periods of history, um, but very, very important for each of them. So to me, this was a great place because as I've mentioned in past episodes, this blending of biblical and non-biblical was tough to switch between. So it was hard for me to go to somewhere that had very clear biblical ties to somewhere that, you know, really didn't at all and was more about like the Crusaders or um, even more modern Jewish history. So switching between the two is hard. Now, once I did, all of those places were awesome, but just the switch was hard. But here you kind of had the same location for all different parts of Jewish history, including biblical history. So I didn't find the transition that hard because it was kind of in the structure itself and in the location itself and in the history itself. And you know, every place we went to, uh, before we enter the city, they kind of talked us through like a few common themes, like, well, what does this place have? Why would they have wanted to build a city here? And there's common things, you know, in history, it's really important uh, to remember that they needed defense. So a high up place was really good. They needed water. They needed food. They needed um, protection. Like like location was really really important. And so here, uh, really easily defended once the mountain itself is built, um, because it was much higher than pretty much anywhere in the surrounding area. While I was there, you know, on top of it, looking around at everything, I felt like, man, this is like the highest mountain in the whole region. And that's not true, but from where you are, you know, looks are deceiving when you're that high up. Uh, you're just like, wow, I am so high up. I can see down into the valleys and over to that city and that city. And so I felt like I was at the top point of all of Israel, but that's not true. Um, it just kind of felt like that. So this is way high up, very easily defended, which is part of, part of why, uh, part of the reason why Herod built it. And also part of the reason why later it was taken over, um, for the Bar Kokhba revolt. So, um, Herod reigned from here. This is our, our guide brought up that this is probably um, where the slaughter of the innocents or the order of the slaughter of the innocent innocents would have taken place. So you remember in Jesus's time, um, as he was born, the wise men came to Herod and kind of tipped him off that they were looking for 
a Messiah. And uh, Herod didn't like that. You know, he didn't want any challenge to his authority or his kingship or his family's authority going forward. And so he killed um, all the babies in the surrounding area between like one and four years old or so. So uh, this is the place where that order would have been sent from because this is kind of where Herod had his primary residence uh, while he was on the earth. Not that he didn't travel, not that he didn't stay at other places, and we did see some of those other places um, kind of just at the whim or the mood of what he was feeling at the time or what business called for. But this would have been kind of the place that he had his his main headquarters because um, he could rule Jerusalem. It was all visible. He could access it quickly, but he wasn't right there taking all the um, the abuse and the hatred from the people. So it was a constant reminder to them that he's in charge, but you know, it also removes him a little bit so that they don't rise up and revolt necessarily. And so, uh, I thought that was interesting because slaughter, slaughter of the innocents is a really important biblical story. That was actually one of the first things that our guide and the rest of, um, the people in our group got kind of, a little bit heated over because he was saying there's no archaeological evidence that that actually happened. And, you know, all the people in our group, not used to arguing archaeology, were trying to refute that because they believe it was an actual event. And, uh, you know, they're using things like, well, it says so in the Bible. And it's like, yes, that's true. And that's literary evidence, but it's not archaeological evidence. And this doesn't bother me because what archaeological evidence are you expected to find? Like the tombs of babies? Like, well, you see those, you just don't know that they're accredited to, you know, just because we have a name, the slaughter of the innocents, as if it's some like world event, you know, like 9-11 is a world event. We all know it by the date because that's what we call it. If I say 9-11, the imagery of that day comes into your mind. If you were to go back in this time and say the slaughter of the innocents, well, that might not mean quite as much. It was a localized event and, you know, it, it would mean a lot to the people that it happened to, but they're you know, there's not like monuments being built to this thing in the countryside of Israel. So uh, it doesn't bother me, but it really bothered other people because they took it as him saying it didn't happen. And he was just saying, we don't have evidence that it happened. So got to remember, those are, those are very different claims. Um, but you know, I do believe it happened. And so I'm standing here in the place where the decree would have gone out from. And I think that's, that's important. Uh, another uh, biblical thing to mention because while this place isn't necessarily mentioned in the Bible, um, you can think about it in terms uh, like when Jesus is preaching to the people and he talks about having faith uh, the size of a mustard seed. And you could tell this mountain move from here to here or you could cast a mountain into the sea. And there's a lot of a lot of discussion about mountains in the Bible. And, you know, later scholars recognize this is probably talking about like whole cities or governments, but you don't get that if you're not there recognizing that these cities or authorities are stationing themselves on mountains. And so if you're moving a mountain from here to there, or you are uh, throwing a mountain into the sea, that's, you, you can point to the mountain you're talking about. And, you know, I know that Jesus wasn't any too happy with like the Pharisees or Sadducees or Sanhedrin or the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, but he was not terribly happy with pretty much everything that had been allowed to go on uh, from the time of the Old Testament after, uh, you know, Moses died and everything. Like it kind of just went downhill, 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 downhill with peaks with certain leaders, you know. 
And so when he comes back to set things right this first time, um, back to set things right the first time, I think you know what I mean there. Like, I believe he was interacting the Old Testament, but the first time he appeared on the scene as, as Jesus, the man Jesus, um, you know, he's trying to set things right. And he's not happy with Herod either because Herod's been given responsibility over these people and he has not handled himself well. Not only is he only partially invested in the truth of scripture, but he, you know, he likes the trappings of his position a lot more than he likes the people that he's meant to lead. And the people feel the same way. So, you know, often we think of like social justice warriors. And if, if you're more on a liberal side, you think like, oh yeah, these are the champions of the world. If you're more on a conservative side, you think like, man, what are you guys complaining about? And uh, I think it's important to keep a middle ground. You know, there is injustice that happens in the world. Um, I don't think it's always for us to like set every single thing straight all the time or to just like be in rebellion against everything. Like sometimes the government gets things right and does things correctly. It's doesn't seems to be more and more rare as time goes on, but that does happen. But also they're not perfect. They're not great. They're, they can be abjectly evil. And so, you know, I think, uh, you look back at certain people in the Bible and they're talking to Israel about their mistreatment of the poor or the widows. And I think these are accurate judgments, you know, I mean, God made them. And so you see some of these prophets acting as literal social justice warriors. It's just, they're aligning themselves with truth, not with the next trend of, you know, what's what's the thing that is cool to be upset about. So that's important to remember. And I think in these instances where Jesus is talking about the movement of mountains and kings and governments, he is in a veiled way being a social justice warrior, you know, pronouncing judgment on some of the evil leaders, including Herod. So for him to look across the landscape to this mountain that's been built by Herod and to talk about throwing it into the sea. You know, I think this would have resonated with the people. And even if he didn't mean that mountain specifically, let's say Jesus was talking in a more veiled way. Some of the people that heard him were the zealots. They were the, the militant ones, the aggressors. And so they would have heard him and maybe interpreted it, uh, you know, that he's talking about Herod's mountain and that he's going to overthrow not only Rome, but Herod's authority. And, and they would have loved this. And so this is why you get some of the interpersonal complicated relationships in the Bible between Jesus and other, other groups, because Jesus would say one thing and sometimes maybe he meant it, but in a, a different way than the people heard it. So if he's speaking this, let's say he's talking about Herod. He's saying, this guy can't reign forever. He can't rule forever. He's evil. That doesn't mean that he wants to rise up this, you know, militaristic rebellion of, of Jewish citizens and go and kill him. That's not, clearly that was not his message, but people might have taken it that way. And I mean, it's clear that they did because later the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, a rebellion, these are kind of the descendants of zealots in the first century in Christ's time that still were not happy with the leadership of the Jewish people in the Herods, and then also not happy with Roman occupation. So, um, was Jesus talking here about Herod's mountain when he talks about moving mountains with faith or casting mountains into the sea? Who knows? But it is an example of a mountain that you can see from Jerusalem and from the surrounding area. Um, and I think there's, you know, a case to be made for it. Anyways, those are just some biblical takeaways. Um, 
this isn't really about the site itself necessarily, just kind of some insights into certain scriptures that might revolve around a place like this, um, or at least a figure like like Herod the Great. And so uh, we get to Herodium, and we drive, you got to drive uphill to even get to the parking lot of this place. And then when you get out, uh, the first place you go in is like a gift shop. I will say, you know, that's typical, tourist trap. Any museum you go to, that's kind of how it is. Either you have to enter through or exit through, or both, the gift shop. Um, but the gift shops weren't really bad. Like, they didn't seem, like, very pushy. And they seemed almost a little more utilitarian. Like, you know, they know tourists are coming through. They know people are going to forget hats. They know people are going to forget water. You know, and so they had a lot of that stuff. Now, they also had stuff like... We're at Herodium, and they'd have stuff like a, a purse that says Jerusalem on it. Well, you know, I'd rather buy that in Jerusalem, personally. But, yeah, so they had souvenirs and trinkets and stuff, but they also had utilitarian stuff. And it, it didn't seem like anybody was very pushy. It wasn't very flashy. It was just, here's a place to buy some stuff before you enter the site. So I actually found that kind of helpful, even though I didn't really use it very often. A lot of people did. So then through the gift shop, we start our trip up this mountain. And you know, anytime we get to uh, a mountainous place, we're all looking up like, okay, well, how high up are we going? How high up are we driving? And we're kind of all, I think at least subconsciously thinking this, because this is a really high up place. Like, it's not like when I say he built a mountain, I wasn't saying like he mounded up some stones, like it looks indistinguishable from any other mountain in the area. And I mean, a lot of that has to do with time, I'm sure. But this is a huge, huge elevation. You know, I mean, it's it's massive for someone building it. Um, so we get out and we're we're gonna kind of go around the mountain, um, so that it's not like going straight up. But we went kind of from the side, uh, the right side of the mountain. Like if you're looking at the mountain head on, you're gonna go from the right side. Uh, and then around and up towards the left. And this was, you know, we, we tried to stop, you know, our guide would always say things like, we're going to find some shade just up here. And I'd be like, no, we're not. But every once in a while you'd find some, but it was pretty rare, especially on the side of a mountain, like a literal mountain. So we stopped and talked as much as we could. This was a little bit harder because we're walking along this path uh, uphill and we kind of have to go in a single file line. It's not a very wide path. And so we're walking up in a single file line and the farther back you get from the guide, the harder it is to hear him. Even in the, you know, the whisper devices we have that transmits the signal. If you're, you know, 50 or 60 people back, it's not transmitting nearly as well as it would if you're right next to him. So I tried to stay as close as I could so I could hear as much as possible. But, you know, sometimes you stop and take a picture and then 35 people go ahead of you, so you kind of had to just take turns. Um, but there were piles of um, round stones stacked up in like a, you know, this had been done by archaeologists or people in charge of the site. Um, but these round stones have been found on the site, and they were uh, things that would be rolled down the mountain at people trying to come up and attack it. So whether that was during Herod's time or uh, during the Third Jewish War, um, you could see, you know, you could look down the side of the mountain and realize how steep it was and realize like, how, how are you going to attack this place? How are you going to possibly overthrow it? Um, especially when you got guys rolling huge stones down on top of you, like that would, 
it's not just going to graze you or like break a leg. Like it, it could very easily kill you. So that was neat to see. Um, then we go, we keep, continue to go around the mountain and we reach this uh, structure, uh, big building, and it, it's just kind of very blocky, like nothing very, um, nothing very archaeologically impressive at this point. It wasn't, how do I, it's not unimpressive by any means. It just, it wasn't like, wow, King Herod built this. This is one of the great wonders of the Israelite world, you know. It was relatively small, um, but it was called the Royal Hall, and this would have been where guests could have stayed, uh, Herod and his family could have stayed here on occasion, um, and then right outside of that, on, just the, on the other side of the trail, there was a theater, and the theater was kind of cool because it's using the slope of the mountain to kind of build into it, you know, and this theater was fairly small, and normally, you know, the bigger the theater, the more impressive it is, and here, the fact that it wasn't that big of a theater, um, it was relatively small, compared to some of the other ones we had seen, or if, maybe if you've been to Greece or something, I'm sure they're huge, uh, or in Rome, but it was relatively small. But that, to me, was actually more impressive because this is made for the use of, like, one guy and his family and his his guests, you know, that would come in. And that's impressive. I mean, it's like going to someone's home and they've got a movie theater screen in their living room. You know, it's like, wow, that's not just a big screen TV. That is a literal room dedicated to you watching a movie in a theater experience. This is kind of what's going on here. Even though it wasn't big, like for a whole community of people, all the effort that went into building this was just for one guy. And to think all the effort of the people coming up this giant mountain just to put on shows for him, like the money that it would take and the effort it would take just to get people up there. You know, we had walked um, a little bit, but we had driven like halfway up the whole thing, you know? So it wasn't like, I don't know, like it would take a lot more effort for people coming up, bringing props and costumes and whatever, just to entertain one guy and some of his guests, you know? You could probably fit, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred in the seats here. So potentially it only happened when he had parties, but even so, it's uh, the intimacy of the theater itself was impressive because it just showed the wealth involved in making it for such a small group. So I thought that was interesting. Then, uh, like I said, that was off to the left of the trail. To the right of the trail was this block building, um, very squared off and everything. And we could go into there. And we went in. Um, they can only take like maybe 15 or 20 at a time. But they had a little presentation and, you know, you're looking around the room and you're like, this is cool. Like, this is a nice room, well-constructed. There's remnants of paintings on the wall and there's columns there and everything. Um, but the, the presentation they had was kind of a projected presentation. And what it did was project in lights kind of a restoration of the whole room. So they'd put the paintings back up on the wall using uh, the lights and they'd put pillars up. And so you're in the room and after they turn the lights down and then put the projection up, it kind of looks like you're in what it would have looked like originally. And that to me was really cool because it painted a picture. And from then on in the rest of Israel and all the ruins, I tried to do this mentally, you know, like do my own projection or like, okay, here's a half a pillar. Let's put it all the way up and just imagine how tall that would be, you know, just, just in pieces. Cause I think 
uh, this really added a lot to my experience because you walk into this room that's just kind of a square room and it's got some ruins in it. You know, I don't really know what to make of it. But then once the projection went up and I could picture the whole thing, it was like, wow, okay, this is actually really cool. And uh, for, for example, there's little paintings on the wall in squares and you can make the outline of the square out, but you can't really tell what the painting is. It's really faded, um, kind of high up on the wall. Some of them are a little clearer than others. And, you know, they're, they're just old paintings. It's like, okay, well, this is cool. I mean, someone a long time ago painted that and that's the original painting that is in and of itself that is impressive and very cool but then when the projection came up it showed that these were actually paintings of windows and so they had shutters on either side and then the window was supposed to look through to a different area so here was one and it was a picture of the nile with a crocodile in it here was one it was a picture of a tree and it it was supposed to be like when you're in this room you can look out onto the whole earth. It's like a window to a different place in the world. And that was cool. I mean, the concept of that was advanced and well thought out and just interesting. So the projection really helped me a lot. And like I said, I tried to do it the rest of the places we went to. Um, but we had, this kind of was, we had a little bit of a bottleneck here because we had to go in smaller groups. And so eventually we all got through, but the rest of us could just kind of stood out on what was essentially like a balcony overlooking this theater, which is open air, and then overlooking the rest of the valley below us. So beautiful place to wait. There was a lot of shade here, so that was nice. Um, was not a bad bottleneck at all. Um, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Could have been in the open sun with nothing to see and nothing to do. And, uh, oh, the other interesting thing about this theater is it has like high-tech equipment up on the stage, and apparently they still have shows here sometimes. And that's true all over Israel. You know, if someone built a theater, they still have modern shows there. A lot of times it's like small concerts or even big concerts, depending on where it is. And so that's kind of neat. Or um, our guide said a lot of times they'll do like bar mitzvahs, bar and bat mitzvahs at some of these places. You got to have a good amount of money to rent the whole location. But even so... Uh, that was that was kind of cool. Another example of the modern and the ancient kind of mixing together. Um, to me, it, it felt a little bit almost like sacrilegious. Like, what are we doing? Why are we, you know, I can't walk over there, but we can have a whole party there if we pay enough money. That just seems crazy. But I guess they've made their peace with it, and that's okay. Um, so we kept on walking around uh, after we all got through this room. Kept on walking around the side of the mountain and up. And eventually, we got to just this long, straight set of stairs. Like, it just looked like it went up and up and up forever. It ended up only being like 200 steps, which, that's still a lot. I mean, I'm not going to say that's not a lot. Um, but putting a number on it somehow, like, makes it seem smaller. But when you're looking up, you know, it was a very steep incline. So you're looking up, and you're like, wow, that's, that's a climb. And it seemed like the whole way up, everybody was making jokes about like, I don't know, when I get tired or I just want to like make it to the destination, I'm not really like a joker. I don't like to talk a lot. Some people though, I feel like it makes them think that it's going to go quicker or like they want to commiserate with someone maybe. So I'm going up and I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I'm not loving this like 200 step incline either, but like we got to get to the top, you know, so let's just go. And um, some people are like, well, how did he get up here? People must've carried him. They should do that for me. And I'm like, 
all right, yeah, I, I get it. And it's like, it's funny the first one or two times, and then, you know, eventually it's just not really. And I'm, you know, I'm not as old as some of the people that were there, and so I'm passing people. And each one felt like they had to make some sort of comment about that on the way up. So eventually, you know, and I'm like, I'm also tired, so I'm not gonna like gonna laugh out loud. But anyways, so that was a little uncomfortable, but we did go up all these stairs and I did feel bad. I mean, there were some people in our group that were really old and they I mean they did great. Like we all made it up there. Um, but it, it was it was quite a climb. And once we got up there, um, what we're what we're climbing towards is the actual fortress. So if the place was ever under attack, let's say Herod was down on the level with the theater and the Royal hall. Um, he would have to go up with all of his guests to the fortress part. And this would be like the, you know, the main line of defense, um, or maybe the last line of defense actually, cause it's the highest up point. And he'd go send out guards from there to tear anyone apart that was trying to climb up and attack. And, you know, that's another thing about being high up is you can see anybody coming after you from forever away. So you've got a lot of time to either escape or defend yourself or strategize or whatever you need to do. Um, but he would have had to go up these 200 steps. And we, I mean, it is interesting to think about, like maybe he was carried up there because I can't imagine uh, going up there very often if, if not ever, you know, because it's way up. So I know they were in better shape back then. I know they, you know, had a lot more steps to climb and that's fine, but this was way up. So I'm not sure that he would have been climbing up himself all the time. Every time he came back to Herodium, we climbed up the steps, got to the fortress, kind of a flat top with high walls. And we could see like the armament where they're building weapons, where they're storing weapons and all that. And that was, that was really cool. The fortress was very impressive. Um, while the Royal Hall itself wasn't huge, um, it was more intricate. The fortress was huge, but less intricate, more roughshod, but definitely still able to, you know, defend. And I'm sure it was beautiful in its own time. And there's some interesting things they found here uh, at the top of this fortress part. Um, first of all, it's important to know that this whole place, while built for Herod, uh, as like a, a central command place um, in central Israel. Uh, this was also meant to be a place where he would receive important guests. Um, for example, he had a pretty good relationship uh, with Caesar Augustus, and he would have entertained uh, Marcus Agrippa, who was a son-in-law of the emperor. Uh, so that's he has really, really important ties with Rome. And it's only by the grace of Rome that he's even able to lead in the first place, which is why it's so interesting that later on, some of these very places where he would have hosted some of Rome's most important leaders, these same places are used by some of the revolters from Judaism to kind of have a stronghold in the land and try and expel Rome. So, I mean, eventually, obviously, they were unsuccessful with that, but the things that Herod built to be impressive to Rome and kind of be a sign of his dominance over Israel ended up being used against Rome on behalf of the Jewish people in Israel. So that's something interesting, but he hosted important people here at Herodium. And it's pretty evident that even after his death, um, it, it was still an important place. 
Um, it wasn't just torn apart, which is why we have such great, great ruins of it today. But something they found here at the top to show that this was such an important place uh, that hosted some of the Roman uh, you know, elite um, was a ring. And this ring found at the top of this fortress has the inscription of Pontius Pilate on it. So he would have either been here at some point or sent his ring as some sort of, I don't know, token of his approval of something. But Pontius Pilate was very well aware of this place. And if Pilate's aware of it, it's clear that Jesus was aware of it. Um, it's it's likely, and most people that have dug here assume that Pilate would have been here himself. And so it's it's not like this would have been where he had his his main residence, but it could have been a place he used to get away from the city for a while uh, in Jerusalem, as it's not that far, but it's far enough removed that you don't have to deal with all the rabble in the city. So that's really cool and supports um, not just the biblical account, but supports the theory that this was a place that was used to entertain dignitaries and important people from Rome and support Herod's, you know, the history of Herod's relationship with Rome. And so uh, really, really important that this ring was found here. Um, and, you know, there's so much, so many records were found here as well, which is why we know that he hosted Marcus Agrippa because everything was written down. Now, this is also why our guide said that it, he doesn't necessarily believe the massacre of the innocents because, you know, Herod goes to the bathroom and someone writes it down and says, Herod does this at this time on this day. And that's not something written down. I still don't have a problem with that because, it's pretty rare for people to write down some of their more shady dealings and, you know, slaughter of the innocents, I would say is one of Herod's more shady dealings. It, it shows a little level of paranoia. And so, um, yeah, I'm still okay with that. I still believe it's a thing that happened. Um, but like, like our guide said, we just don't have archeological evidence for it and there's no written evidence for it here at Herodium itself. Um, but this was an important place. So after this, we're at the top of this fortress, wondering how we're going to get back down. You know, are we going to go back down the 200 steps that we took to get up? Or is there some other way? You know, sometimes it was hard to tell in most places we were. While our guides have been here several times, um, none of us had, or very few of us had, if any. And so sometimes you're walking around and you think, oh man, we just walked for six miles, how are we supposed to get back? This is going to take forever. And then it turns out we walked in a circle and didn't even know it. Or, you know, sometimes you'll go uphill one way and you think, okay, well, we're going to go downhill. And then it's uphill to get back somehow. And you just didn't realize that you went downhill at some point. So everything was kind of deceiving. Um, I think just because we were so focused on what we were learning and what we were seeing that we're not really paying attention to where we're going or the path we, we take to get there. But looking around, I'm not seeing many places to um, get back down except for the stairs going back like we took up. Um, but our guide turns off to the left a little bit and he um, starts walking down this little hole in the ground. And it's not as small as like Hezekiah's tunnel. It wasn't as small as the crypt at the hospital or fortress, but it was definitely small. I had to duck quite a bit trying to get down. Um, but he goes down this hole in the ground, and this is a whole entire network of tunnels. And these tunnels go straight through the heart of the mountain. And our guide is explaining to us as we're going that this system of tunnels, this whole network, would have been used by the Bar Kokhba revolt, 
to not only get water up and down between the top and the bottom of the mountain, but also as a place of like guerrilla warfare, you know, if there's a, an army coming up to attack you, you can come out through these tunnels and, um, you know, come out from a place that they didn't expect, or, uh, they also probably would have blocked some of the main entrances. So the only way up would have been through these tunnels. And so imagine you're a Roman soldier trying to take out this rebellion and you try and go up to the top of this place, which is a common, you know, not only a common tactical move by all ancient warfare enactors, but also um, very common in the third Jewish war for this Bar Kokhba rebellion. Uh, think of Masada, you know, we'll talk about that later. We did go to Masada, um, but Masada is another high up place built by Herod that the Jews kind of just ran up, sequestered themselves there, and they could defend for a very long time. Same thing here at Herodium. But imagine you're a Roman soldier or Roman legion trying to get into this mountain fortress. And the only way in is through this network of tunnels through the heart of the mountain. Well, one, it's steep. So you've got the low ground. Two, it's dark. And you are unfamiliar with the twists and the turns, whereas the rebels are very familiar with them. So they would just hide in the dark and just wait to ambush you. So incredible use of digging. And, you know, we're going through like half a step at a time, just trying not to slip or like break something and trying to like watch all the old people. It kind of felt like an exodus. You know, everywhere we went felt like an exodus where it's like we got to watch out for people and make sure we're all together. And did they make it down and did they make it up? And, you know, that was kind of interesting. Um, it was definitely a challenge, but I can't imagine it must've been way more a challenge for Moses trying to get all those people through, um, like through the sea and everything and just in the wilderness, but we're just going downstairs or somewhere there's sometimes there's stairs in these tunnels and sometimes it's just rock ground. But, um, yeah, it, it was pretty tricky just to go down even with lights. So in the dark, you know, these rebels had to be pretty familiar with where they were going, but it would have been quite formidable to try and get up if you're a Roman trying to overtake this place. So good strategy uh, on behalf of the Jewish rebellion. Um, so we make it down this set of tunnels and um, I, I like that again, anytime I feel like I'm climbing or spelunking or, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of a place like that, that's just, it's cool to me. It makes it feel more real. Um, so I really thought that was cool. And it was way better than just going downstairs, which we had already seen. So we get down this set of stairs through these guerrilla tunnels. And then uh, this was pretty much the end of the site. On our way out, uh, something I saw that I thought was cool. You know, I'd read the day before different things you could see from Herodium. And one of the things was Tekoa, which is a small town, kind of about the same distance away from Jerusalem as Herodium, about 12 kilometers or so. Um, but I heard you could see it. And so I wanted to know where that was because uh, earlier, uh, I think either earlier this year or sometime late last year, I had the opportunity to teach Amos at uh, my church's Bible college. So that was awesome because Amos is from the town of Tekoa. And to be able to visualize that, where he came from, this little suburb town um, outside of Jerusalem. So yeah, our, and our, our guide wasn't even going to show us, you know, it's like we were, there's so much to see and so much to point out that he's just like, he can't possibly list everything. And so I say, Hey, where's to He says, it's over there. And then he keeps on going with his presentation. I'm just like, wow, like we would have missed it if I hadn't asked. And so I'm really glad I asked because, 
Um, that's a place I really wanted to see. So got my picture with Tacoa in the background because I definitely grew to love Amos after teaching uh, the book to that class. So that was that was really cool. Um, a few things uh, before I move on from this part uh, of the trip. Um, so when Herod died, he knew, really interesting, you know, this was the place that not only he would have lived and ruled, but he transformed it into his mausoleum at his death. And he knew that the Jewish people would not cry at his death because he was a he was a despot king. You know, he was, um, and many people think he might have been psychotic or whatever. People have different theories on that. In some ways, he's brilliant. He's a genius. In some ways, he's an evil ruler. It's just, you know, depends on which part of his rulership you're looking at. But uh, the Jewish people were not fans of him because really he wasn't meant to be king. He was only there as king because the Romans put him in charge because they had a friendship with him. But to uh, assure that people would be weeping at his death, he sent a list to all of his uh, people in command that they were to kill certain popular leaders in Jerusalem. And so they went at his death and immediately killed all these people that the Jewish people loved and that he knew they loved better than him. And so there's, there's this mass death of all these Jewish leaders and rabbis and he kills them all or he has them killed after his death as like his last wish. And so as his body's being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem on its way out back to Herodium and then up onto the top where he'd be finally be buried um, in this mausoleum, the people of Jerusalem are weeping because not for Herod's death, but for his one last act of evil. So this speaks to kind of his insanity and his, um, his egotism that, you know, definitely was, um, definitely was prevalent in his life. Um, and then, like I mentioned several times throughout the Bar Kokhba revolt, this was, uh, part of the third Jewish war, third Jewish rebellion around 132 AD. So quite a bit after Christ, quite a bit after the events of uh, the Bible and the apostles. But this had been growing for a long time. You know, this there was two Jewish wars prior to this, obviously. So the third one and the last one, um, this was uh, pretty significant. And this is where I want to talk. We'll go into it later, but there's a rabbi that I really, really love and respect a lot. His story, at least, obviously, I never met him. But his story is so inspiring to me, and I'll cover it a different day, but I just want to drop his name here because he was very, very influential in this revolt, and his name was Rabbi Akiva. Um, yeah, and he was an, an active participant in this revolt, so some of the people that would have been here might have known him or looked up to him or respected him or even followed him, so that's an, an important thing to know, but we'll talk about his story later. So those were the highlights of Herodium, um, pretty much all that happened to us there. We only had one more uh, scheduled stop, aside from lunch, uh, on our agenda that day. But then we also made one final stop at the end of the day that we hoped would be a little bit longer, but ended up being really short, so it won't be a lot to tell you about. We should end around the same time we do uh, for most episodes. But it is important that we cover this next site. Uh, was supposed to be our final stop of the day. This was Bethlehem. A really, really important biblical spot. Bethlehem, uh, two Hebrew words, Beth or Bet or Beit, uh, Hebrew for house, and then Lechem meaning bread. So the house of bread, uh, really significant for Jesus being the bread of life, obviously. Um, and this is where uh, Jesus was born. 
in Bethlehem. So really, really uh, significant spot also in the West Bank. Um, if you were to look at a map of Israel and look at the West Bank, there's kind of a one big portion of the West Bank and then one smaller little tail coming down at the bottom of the West Bank. And both Herodium and Bethlehem are really, really close to each other, just a few miles apart in that little bottom tail portion in middle Israel um, to the west of the Dead Sea. And so this is where Bethlehem is. Um, a lot of places it's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, I wrote a few down. Micah 5 verse 2, Second Chronicles 11 verse 6, Ruth 1 verse 19, um, then Matthew 2 5 through 7, Luke 2 verse 4, and 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. Um, really important spot. Not only is Jesus born here, but so is David. This is David's home spot, you know, where uh, the story where David looks over at Bethlehem and it's a place that's hostile to him as he's, you know, in his transition to be king, but not quite king yet. And he looks over at Bethlehem and he, he longs for a taste of the water from his hometown. And some of his mighty men go and they get some of the water and he, he can't in good conscience drink it because they risk their lives to get it for him. So he pours it out. Um, awesome story. I just really like that story a lot. Makes David very human, uh, at least in my mind, just because, you know, we've all missed parts of our hometown or been nostalgic for things. And so it's cool to see that David was as well. And the one thing we were seeing in Bethlehem was uh, the Church of the Nativity. This was the big, the big thing to do here. And uh, I'm not going to cover lunch. We didn't have lunch just before this. It was also very good, but similar to the lunch we had the day before. So not a lot to cover. It was neat because it was like in an, um, you kind of walk down a few steps and you're kind of in like a tent thing. And I don't know, it was like a mix between outdoor and indoor. Um, really cool place. We had great shish kebabs and uh, I enjoyed it a lot, but not a lot to report. So Bethlehem at the Church of the, Nat- church of the Nativity, we had to walk to the church. We couldn't park at it because it was just so busy. Um, and it was interesting here. We could not um, have our Israeli guide guide us through this church. And so we picked up a second guide just for this day or just for this site, actually. And he hopped on our bus and he was a Christian, one of the very few Christians in the West Bank. And he was the one that was going to uh, lead us through the church, the church, of the nativity, really, really nice guy. I liked him a lot. Um, but there's a whole thing about the laws of, you know, you got to have certain permits in order to like act as a tour guide in certain areas. And so we had to pick up this other guy really nice. I liked him a lot. And he was, um, I believe he was Greek Orthodox. And so when he took us in, you know, um, are we sure this is exactly where Jesus was born? You know, like dead on the spot. No, we're not. We know this is Bethlehem. We know this is the region. We know this is the area. But do we know that this church is exactly the spot? No, we don't. Our guide, Edan, was pretty clear on that. But when he passed us over to the other guy, I wish he had warned us a little bit because this guy was very, he was a staunch advocate for the fact that this was the spot where Jesus was born. He believed it with like all of his, his core being. So um, I was trying not to be disrespectful, but I was trying to still ask questions like a tourist, like, you know, with what certainty do we know this was it? How do we know this was it? And a lot of the things that 
I meant as just genuine questions. He took his a little bit offensive as if I was doubting or questioning. And he was like, you know, you don't have to believe it if you don't want, but I believe it. I believe this. And so uh, that's enough for me. I was like, okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, but we walk up to this church and it really, outside, it wasn't that impressive. Um, it was big for sure, but it was kind of just like all, like, it wasn't very ornate. It was just a big, giant brick building. And you kind of had to be told what different parts of it were or what they meant uh, because just looking at it, like I would just pass by and be like, yeah, that looks like a church or a convent or something. But it, there's not a lot of imagery like there are at other cathedrals um, as to what this place is. Like at, at the Church of the Annunciation, there's Mary and angels and, you know, infant Jesus everywhere. Here, you don't have a lot of that. So we're waiting to get in and the main door of this whole church is like two and a half feet high. And I'm not even joking. It was tiny. And I'm thinking like, there's no grand entrance. There's no, it's just, there's something much more rustic about this. And so we asked the question, why is this door so tiny? Like there's just no good way to get in here. And he pointed out, if you look at the wall, there were different places where it looks like there could have been other doors, but they'd been filled in with bricks. And there were like three or four of these spots. So there's one spot where there's like a, a lintel for a door way, way up, maybe 40 feet high. And he says this was the original door when this was first built. But then over time, they thought, no, this should be a much more humble place, a place of reflection, meditation. So they made the door smaller, not as grand, you know, and... Um, to reflect the the humility that we should have as we, as we go here. So then there's a lintel further down. There's another door. And he said, now this door worked like this for a while, but then when the crusaders came in, uh, often people would bring their horses in the church and they were tired of this. It was ruining the mosaic floors. It was dirty. There was poop everywhere. And so they lowered the door again just so that uh, horses couldn't go in. Well, okay, that's interesting. I never would have known that just looking at this tiny door. Then there's another smaller door. And he says, okay, this one was made smaller because um, not only did they not want horses coming in, but they didn't want people coming in uh, standing tall and looking up. They wanted people, everyone who comes in has to look down and, and kind of prostrate themselves before what they're about to see. And so that's why you have this door be so tiny because no one can possibly go into this door without stooping or bowing down. And so it forces humility on everybody. And I mean, that much detail in just the thought of the size of the door. I mean, this is fascinating to me and it's all over Jerusalem. I mean, this is why we'll get to the temple in a while, but this is why the temple steps on one side are at different lengths and heights because you had to intentionally look where you were going. You had to have your face down looking at your steps and, um, not letting your mind wander to other things. And, you know, you, you had to come slowly rather than just rushing up the steps irreverently. And so they put a lot of thought into not just the architecture, but how a person was going to visit the place where this architecture was. So that was fascinating. And a few people actually didn't even go in because they saw the door and they thought, oh man, after that crypt, I'm not going into another small space. And I, I wish they had tried because it was really only the door. As soon as you're through the door, it opens up into this huge church. But, you know, they weren't sure. The guide tried to tell them it was fine, but they just waited outside. And uh, and here's a place you had to have uh, your knees covered. Women had to have shoulders covered. You couldn't, you know, you're not wearing a hat inside. 
couldn't wear like open-toed shoes. There's all these like rules for respect and that, that happened at a lot of places we went to. Um, but they actually had a guard there enforcing it. So like I had my hat on, uh, as we're waiting outside and he told me like pretty forcibly like hat off. I'm like, okay, sorry. Like I'm not even inside yet, not even stepping in through the door yet, but he was pretty adamant that I was not going to go in with a hat on. So we all make it through this tiny door and it opens up into this huge room and up at the front towards the altar, there's a big, almost like a building inside of the building, uh, very ornate. And there's all over this church, there are, um, like incense things hanging down. It almost looks like Christmas ornaments, but they're, they're incense, um, holders on chains and everything is gold. There's pillars on either side. It's got, uh, the ceiling is, is bare wood with, um, you know, exposed beams and everything. And there are original, um, mosaic looking like fresco things on the wall depicting different scenes. But this whole place is just like decked out in gold and ornate. Um, you know, everything is like just over the top gaudy in my opinion. Um, but the main thing to see was this giant building inside the building up at the altar and underneath this is where it's believed um, by the Armenians and the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics. Um, this is where it's believed that Christ was born. So the original um, like manger story, you know, it would have been much like it was at uh, Nazareth. This would have been like a, a basement level of a home where Jesus and his family would have stayed uh, to escape the elements um, and just be inside. So it wasn't like a barn. It wasn't like they couldn't find any, any room in someone's home. They were with family. And this would have been the place where when there weren't guest rooms in the house, this is where people would be. And this is just, it wasn't like some insult or anything like that. Often that's a misconception. But on either side of this square box structure, ornately covered in gold and little hanging baubles and incense holders and everything, there are uh, stairs going down, about three stairs, and they're made of this orange type of stone. I'm not sure what stone it is. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and they're kind of in a semicircle, like a half circle, going down like a theater into this little doorway in this in the right or the left-hand left hand side of this box building. And you go through that doorway, and that apparently is where the... Um, the nativity is said to have occurred and it's kind of like a little cave area. But here, you know, when we were in Nazareth and we saw the church, of the Annunciation, you can see like ruins of the place. You know, it, I think they did a nice job of separating the ancient and the more modern. And when I say more modern, you know, some of these churches are still crazy old, um, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of years old, but modern in the sense that it wasn't first century. Here, though, I really think they did not do a great job at preservation, which our archaeologist guide was not terribly upset with because, um, you know, if you don't believe this is the place, then it doesn't matter that they decked it out in ornate things. It's like, well, whatever. If you do think this was the place, then typically you are a Greek Orthodox Catholic or Armenian, and you think this is how you're supposed to revere a site like this. So the Palestinian guide we picked up, he was, uh, he was okay with this, but we walked through and inside it was packed. I mean, man, it was packed. You got to just inch your way forward. And for a big guy, you know, you'd think 
I could just kind of push people aside, but everyone's moving so slow. It's so quiet, not really supposed to talk. You're in the West Bank, so things are a little bit more strict, a little bit more rigid. You want to be careful what you say and how, how loud you say it. Um, so I didn't push anybody out of the way or anything. But you go down into this dark, dark room, and they've got candles everywhere. And then on the floor off to the right, there's a, a metal star on the ground with all these points around it. And they say this is where um, Jesus would have actually been born. And then the manger is off to the left a little bit in this tiny little alcove and even just to get around in there was you know it's like something you have to do because you're there and how often are you going to get back but it wasn't something that I felt like some spiritual experience with or anything Um, if that is where Jesus was born very cool I've been there if it's not then at least I went to the place where historically people think it happened and there's some cultural significance there so uh, we saw that and then pretty much just filed our way through Um, There were so many people and we were kind of running late uh, just a little bit because entrance into this place, this uh, cave basement structure of what's supposed to be a house here, uh, rotates who can go through. So it's like there's a time for Catholics, there's a time for Armenians, there's a time for Greek Orthodox, and this is kind of how they... Uh, monitor it. And we weren't any of those, you know, but as tourists, you can kind of go through any of them, but certain times are better than others. And so we were with a Greek Orthodox guide who actually says he had gotten married in that church. That was cool. Um, uh, So we're with a Greek Orthodox guide. So we went through at a Greek Orthodox time and he said, quick, we need to get out because it's almost the Armenian time and they'll have a mass and everything. So we had to get out pretty quickly, filed out back through the church. And that was like as quickly as I said all of that is pretty much as quickly as it happened to us. It was a very, very brief thing, but it was um, it was still a beautiful church and still really cool to see. Uh, the last thing that I'll mention about this place is that there was a statue here outside of Jerome who wrote the Latin Vulgate. And something interesting is that he actually wrote it here at this church. So uh, he fully believed this was the place where Jesus Christ was born. And so he went and lived in that cave that we all walked through single file. And that's where he penned the Latin Vulgate. So I know people have issues with the Latin Vulgate. There's, I know there's problems with it and everything, but um, interesting part of theological history. And, uh, I, you know, I think as far as Jerome goes, like I think he was a well-intentioned individual and I think his history is really cool. So to be in a place that he lived and to see like the dedication he had to go live in that little cave, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very, uh, cozy or quaint, but he felt like he needed to be there to do his best work. So that's where he went. Um, so that was everything we did in Bethlehem. After that, we just went to like a little souvenir shop. Um, I got a widow's mite, which was cool. It was ridiculously expensive, but, um, you know, after the money's gone, you just have the experience and the item. So it's sitting on a shelf behind me right now. And I think it's pretty neat. Um, and it was supposed to be like a Christian souvenir shop. So you're supporting Christians in the West Bank, which there's only like 1% that are actually Christians in that area. So to support them, I guess they, they really appreciate it because living there can be tough. Um, you know, there's a lot of Islamic people, and they don't really give a lot of support to Christians there. So um, that's why we went. And 
I think they did pretty well. I mean, there's a lot of people buying a lot of stuff. A lot of olive wood carvings in that spot. And we were there for a long time, though. So after this, uh, we it was kind of tentatively on the list. We were going to go to the place where the battle between David and Goliath had happened. Now, the intent was to go to the place where it's believed the Philistines were actually camped. When we got there, we drove there on the bus. Um, it was like we, we got turned around. So we, we got there to the place, we pulled in, and then we got waved out by some of the park people. And I guess they were having an event there. So we couldn't go up into the site itself. So that was already disappointing. Personally, I thought we were going to the camp of the Israelites, which I was much more interested in, but I guess they're still doing a decent amount of excavation there. It's not quite tourist ready. Um, so what ended up happening is, instead of going to either site, we camped our bus right on the side of the road in the valley between the two, which in and of itself, while a little bit disappointing because you're not seeing the actual ruins, you're not getting out and you know interacting with the history, we are in the valley where the actual battle took place, you know? And so we sat there on the side of the road, read the account of David and Goliath. We had just been to Bethlehem where David was from. And so we kind of drove along the path he would have gone when, you know, he's in the fields tending his father's flock. And then he goes to see his brothers at the front of the battle. This is where he would have gone. And the path we drove would have been the path he took to this place. So, wow, mind blown. Um, that was impressive, but we're sitting there in the Valley that this would have happened. And we can see over on our, uh, on our right side, we can see the, uh, ruins of the town. Um, this was cool. Uh, our guide said this town has two gates and the name for it in the Bible actually means the town of two gates. And so the person writing this story of David and Goliath was very familiar with the location and the archaeology of it, you know, probably he wrote it later, uh, whether it was Samuel or whoever ended up penning the the name names of the place and the story itself, um, or editing it later, was very familiar with the location. So location, we know for sure is dead on. Now he tried to bring up again, we don't have archaeological evidence for the David and Goliath story. Well, how do you have archaeological evidence of one battle that happened between a giant man and a tiny kid, you know, or, you know, like a teen, you just, you don't, they're not going to put up a plaque in the middle of the field. And if they did, it's very easily buried and we might find it at some point. So who knows? Um, didn't bother me, bothered a lot of other people, but off to the right, we see the Israelite camp in that town called two gates. And off to the left, we see the hill where the Philistines would have camped and work parked right between them where David and Goliath would have met. And we're reading the story of David and Goliath. That was an incredible time. Uh, it's kind of hard because when you have different people reading, everywhere we went, we tried to read the biblical accounts um, of where we were to kind of make it come alive for us. And that that was great. You know, reading is, reading out loud, people aren't really used to it. And so sometimes you'd hear people's voices and it'd be like, oh man, they're, they're fumbling over names or, you know, they're not used to the story or how it's written or how it goes. And so there's a lack of poetry there or something. It can kind of be a little jarring. So sometimes I just take out my Bible and read through myself, put some headphones in so I could just kind of be in the moment. But even so, this was incredible. And I wish we had gotten off the bus. I, I would have liked to take a little bit of dirt from the side of the road. And what I was doing was every place we went, I took some dirt from the location and put it 
in my Bible with like a little bit of spit or water or something just to make a little dirt smudge from the place that it actually happened. So all throughout my Bible, you've got little smudges of dirt. Some people liked the idea. Some people hated it, thought it was a little sacrilegious, but I thought it was cool. So I would have loved to get off the bus and do that, but we just didn't have the opportunity and we were kind of running late already. But that was the last thing we did for the day. And um, I'd love to go back and see that city of the two gates because it just, you know, I read a lot about it before going and I knew it was a potential that we'd get to see the spot or the site. Um, I just thought that was the site we were seeing, not the Philistine camp. So um, maybe when I go back, they'll be more ready to receive tourists there. Who knows? But anyways, that is the whole of day four. So we did it. We're on a day for a day right now. Hopefully we can keep this up. We'll see. This one ran a little bit long, but you know, sometimes you got to do that. We'll pick up with day five, to, uh, not tomorrow, but the next time I record an episode, uh, starting off with Caesarea Maritime. So really cool spot. Um, another place built by Herod, really important to scripture, uh, especially the New Testament. So, uh, and also this is where we'll hear the story of Rabbi Akiva. So don't look it up in between now and then, because I just think it's such a powerful story. I uh, really, really am impressed with the faith of that man. So, um, that's what we'll do next time, but thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And hopefully you're looking forward to the next episode. Thank you.